Ash. Um, happy New Year. It's 2023. It's been, I think, three weeks since last we chatted before Christmas. I hope you've had a great start to your new year. Happy New Year, Carrie. Uh, yeah, we had a great time around here. Super relaxed. I had a couple of weeks off. I'm just going back to work tomorrow. Uh, and I, I spent a lot of time doing that kind of nice exploratory, just for the heck of it, like coding you know, find something, you get something on your mind, just go check it out, try it out for a little while, because I, I had the time to do that. And it was, mm -hmm. it was excellent. Also, the family things were great, too. But I've got to say, <laughs> it was kind of nice to scratch a few <laughs> itches in JavaScript as well. Yeah, I totally agree is that the family things were great. Um, I had a little bit more time since I was also on a sabbatical. Um, I did not do nearly as much coding as I thought I might just giving my brain a rest in the December timeframe, but um, was definitely playing around with um, some JavaScript stuff. I was um, working on Retroputer a little bit, um, trying to, to um, come to terms a little bit more with workers and, and shared memory and stuff like that. I didn't get very far because my brain was also thinking about Christmas and everything else. And, you know, it's cold and hmm. my brain was not firing on all cylinders. And then I was also playing around with Swift a little bit. And um, I know we had talked about that in the last session of things we were looking forward to in 2023. Um, and one of those was some of the, the audio uh, kit and things like that with Swift. And I started to get my feet wet again. And then I very quickly remembered, yep, this is why I'm frustrated with the, the quality of Swift documentation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I had a little bit of a run in with the, more of the Apple Doc stuff as well. But <laughs> I love how we, we did our what we look forward to. Uh, in 2023 as part of the last episode, as you mentioned. I love how you got into the new year and immediately did one of those things. And <laughs> whereas I was like, ooh, uh, what list? And instead was like, ooh, Safari web extensions. I'll play with that, which was not even a thing I was thinking about yet. I spent a good chunk of this week messing around with it. Um, and I think that's a topic that uh, I'm hoping we'll get a chance to cover in depth yes. sometime in the near future. Uh, but either way, I, I got... Uh, for the first time in quite a while, actually, some firsthand experience uh, digging through docs on Apple site. <laughs> the, the, by the way, and Apple site says this as well, but they're like, if you want to build web extensions, according to the current standard, mm -hmm. the MDN, MDN docs, Mozilla Developer Network docs mm -hmm. are the place to go. And those are nice. I have to say they are quite nice. Oh, um, so live and that, die by those. Yeah, it helps. It's just uh, it's it's odd that uh, <laughs> that that set of docs, as far as I can tell, makes it a point never to mention the word Safari. And so sometimes <laughs> I'm looking at things and I'm like, well, I hope all of this is just applicable. And so far, so good. Uh, but yeah, right. it's a it's a kind of an odd sort of a little bit of a disconnect that you just kind of have to ignore. It, it is a fun, uh, a strange, like, um, like if you're thinking about other languages and other standard libraries, like you, you fully expect to have the, the author of those be the one providing all the documentation and like, go oh, here and, and, and read all about it, not go to some other site. And I, I kind of smirked a little bit. I was browsing through, might've been Reddit. I think it was Reddit. Um, I have a, a multi-Reddit where I keep track of some JavaScripty encoding stuff. And I didn't dig into this, but someone had posted in the, in their question, why doesn't JavaScript have its own like docs site? And it's like, it's, it, it's like, well, my initial response or thought was it does. It's just called Mozilla Developer Network. <laughs> it's like, oh, yeah. But, you know, that's that's also a sign of like 
JavaScript, the language slash no standard library versus all the tools that the community has had to build in order to make you know this this language comprehensible and learnable by 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 developers um, is is an interesting um, way of doing things compared to like Lua or other languages that where it's all the docs and and everything together are in in one package. I have not thought of that before. That's so interesting, but so true. Um, I guess when you're in JavaScript land for so long, you start to just know how things right? are. <laughs> Uh, but that's that's probably like for someone just learning JavaScript, that's like showing up to, you know, like a new city in a foreign land and trying to navigate their uh, public transit system right. and being like, I don't know, I can't read this. How does everybody just know what to do? There's no signs. How, how do I pay mm -hmm. for this? And all those kind of things. Uh, with JavaScript, you just kind of get a feel for like where you will know things are at some point. Uh, and MDN is often a place for that. I feel like also um, there's a site that I think pops up and I'm just totally talking off the top of my head here. But if I remember right, there's one called JavaScript.rocks that seems to make its yes. way towards the tops of my search results more often these days. Mm -hmm. So I, I'm not sure if that's a, a reputable source. I, I just don't know much about it but and haven't haven't looked at it in a while. But it's it's kind of interesting to see that there are all these other places that you kind of know that you're going to need to go. If you're building on Node.js, for example, you're yes. going to go to the Node.js docs, which are mm -hmm. kind of a bit different than in a lot of ways than, than you know, your, your browser JavaScript and, and that kind of thing. Yeah, it is definitely um, a little bit different than like, I, I, I remember um, trying to learn Lua. I haven't done a lot in Lua these days, but um, like, just knowing like, okay, wherever I went to get Lua, the docs were right there. Everything was in, in one nice spot, ready to go. Kind of the same deal with with a lot of Python stuff. Is if you can go to the Python site, download it, the docs are right there. And JavaScript is like, oh, I mean, number one, it's already part of your browser unless you're downloading it as Node. And then it's like, where do you get your docs? And yeah, it's kind of one of those things of we, I've been in it for so long. It doesn't really ever come into my brain as a question, but someone learning it for the first time, um, that has to feel a little bit weird. <laughs> For sure. So I think that, you know, it sounds like we've had some good time during our break, just kind of playing around with different things and uh, building on some stuff. I think some of that we're going to end up talking about today. Um, but before we jump into... Um, one of the things that you've been looking into for the last few weeks, it sounds like, um, we have a bit of follow-up from... Uh, John Ernest, the creator of Decker, uh, was kind enough to reach out to us, uh, I guess this is a few weeks ago now, and uh, was you know, listened to the episode that we did about Decker and, and building stuff and um, had some specific pieces of follow-up based on some things mm -hmm. that you and I specifically were talking about. So thought that it would be cool to just go through. It looks like there's about three different things that John addressed in his uh email uh, mm -hmm. in terms of either updates or clarifications on some stuff. So maybe we can talk through those for just a second. Yeah, that sounds like that. That sounds like a plan. Cool. So if I remember correctly, one of the topics that you and I were discussing was, OK, so in Decker, right? Decker, if you don't know what that is, go see the previous episode on it. Um, but think of Decker as like a kind of I modern it's almost like a weird way to say it but modern sort of hypercard uh sort yes of a retro, modern with retro feel yes 
built now but very retro and in a good way so we did a whole episode on on what you can do with that including the scripting and kind of speculating about some things that you could probably do with it that we hadn't quite gotten into so as we were talking about scripting decker one of the pain points that seems both of us ended up in was that if you are scripting you are in the script editor and that's a mode that you are in and there are no other windows on the screen that you can use mm-hmm. so decker is a lot like a, a you know some of the earliest macs in that you know when you're kind of uh well, I guess this is a little different than the earliest Macs because you could do multi-windowing in early Macs. But with this particular application anyways, like the whatever it's you're doing right now. experience. <laughs> exactly. It's the takeover experience. The whole screen's doing whatever mode you're in right now. So it's tricky if you're if you're in a scripting environment and you want to, in your script, programmatically interact with something that perhaps mm-hmm. you put into the UI, right? Yeah. Let's just say like I had a... a I don't know. I put a rectangle on the screen and it has a certain name that I assigned it. Mm-hmm. Uh, if I want to refer to that in the script, well, now I need to like flip back over to the active UI and look up, look at what did I actually call this thing so I can refer to it programmatically. There was a lot of clicking back and forth that it sounds like uh, both of us got into at some point. Yes. And if you're like me, I had to repeat it a couple of times because by the time I got back to the the editor, my brain had already forgotten how I spelled the name of that rectangle or what have you. So I had to go back and do it again. <laughs> yeah. For me, that's uh, I put it in uh, a special Ram uh, commonly referred to as a, as a notebook on my <laughs> desk because I'm the same. It's like I to get there and if I do the thing where I'm like, Oh, this one's called, uh, I don't know. I called it like a, uh, a, uh, uh, username div, username div, username div, and then just keep repeating it to yourself. Yes. In some cases that's going to work, but not often. Not always. So I just tend to jot things down as I go, but of course, there could be a better way. And John Ernest actually reached out to say that he had made an update to Decker. And I'll just kind of read what he said. Mm-hmm. Um, so X-ray specs um, is a new feature. So he didn't write that, but he's added a new feature called X-ray specs. And here's what he said about it. So X-ray specs allow you to view the names and layout of widgets while editing scripts and more quickly navigate between widget scripts. So you imagine, for example, um, you know how like on the Mac OS terminal, you can Mm -hmm. have like transparency or translucency through it. So like now I I like a little bit of it, but too much is like I'm not I'm I'm, like just typing on (laughs) another window now. It's very confusing to me, but that's an option and it's super cool. Um, Mm -hmm. And I remember when that first became possible, it was kind of mind blowing. It's like, whoa, I'm seeing right through this window. Uh, So anyways, Now, imagine that, but in a (laughs) one-bit environment. So it's pretty cool. Like You're in the scripting editor inside of Decker, and uh, you're literally writing a script, but underneath, you can see like your UI with the component names. And they're what? I guess you'd say like grayed out a bit to the point where it looks like they're sort of, there's a bit of a, uh, how would I say this? Like, transparency i'm losing my words like here you're re- but- like almost like you're looking through glass at them they're, they're yes. slightly faded out um grayed out is a good word for it um and not enough like not to the point where they're distracting but you you can see the information you need to see which is really slick yeah so super awesome feature and definitely for every bit of my 
issues with jumping back and forth, this would have knocked that out. So really cool to see that, I guess, you know, we wouldn't have been the only ones running into that. Um, let's call it, you know, UX limitation of the version that we were working with. But now there's a thing called X-ray spec. So if you're in the scripting UI, uh, I don't know if it was in the file menu or where, but you can drop down into one of the menu items and it says literally X-ray specs. Yeah, there's a GIF here that um, once it comes back to it, it is, yeah, it's in the file menu, X-ray specs, as you're editing a script. Um, so once you go into a script to edit, file, X-ray specs, and then it turn, it, it enables that mode. Um, and it does, it just looks really cool too. It's it's really slick, well, slick and well done. Yep, it's pretty awesome. So uh, next up, another one that kind of addressed some of the things that Carrie, you and I ran into which was formatting columns in a table inside of Decker. So we talked about this one at length, I think, because yes, it was like, did. honestly, like probably where I spent like more time than I'd like to talk about mm -hmm. is in terms of just percentage of my building that one deck. I was trying to figure out how to format my columns and get them to behave the way I wanted to. So uh, John uh, messaged us this. Um, so I'll just read what he said. I also introduced some additional options for creating and manipulating table data on the fly, which in combination with documentation improvements may help avoid some of the confusion and frustration you both dealt with in relation to grid column formatting. So I, I looked at the, the, the GIF that he sent us, Carrie, and I'll be honest, I don't remember enough of the specifics of how that worked before. Mm -hmm. So do you think, for example, if you're looking at that GIF, there's some radio buttons that let you edit data in JSON or CSV. Is that the new part of it? Yeah. So um, one of the things, one of the challenges that I had was even just initially getting some data in. And there was a way to do it um, where you could basically import a CSV file. Um, but for, for the longest period of time, I was really trying to figure out, okay, there's got to be a way to, for me to leverage the environment to create it, um, rather than me having to go to Excel, which is eventually what I did. I went to Excel, created hmm. the CF, CSV file, and then imported it. And that worked, um, to create my grid. It, in some ways it broke the, 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 um, the immersion experience of here we are sitting in this one bit retro nostalgia environment. Um, and then all of a sudden I have to hop over to Microsoft Excel to edit a table and then come back. And so this alone is, is, is very welcome is, um, you can put in a CSV, but you can also put in JSON, which is my, like, I've been lived in JavaScript long enough that, JavaScript object notation is my, like how I think in terms of uh, objects and data these days. So like even just having a, the ability to drop in a JSON file there and, and put it right in there um, really is going to save a lot of time. And because you're now in the tool, it's just that much more immediate. I don't have to go swap out to another tool, make changes, save the file, go to this, come back, import the file and things like that. So that alone is already a, a huge improvement. And you could jump back and forth between the JSON and CSV options. 
in that table editor, mm-hmm. if I remember correctly. So that was also yeah. pretty useful because I think there could be situations where even if JSON's like your preferred way of editing things, it can be helpful to also, you, at some point, this is a table. So yes. being able to see something in CSV or vice versa, right? Um, just either way, being able to flip back and forth seems like it would be a useful feature. And from what I could tell, just in the GIF that he sent, that that was pretty seamless. You just click the button and it shows you a different way of looking at the data. Which is super cool, yeah. Because, yeah, I mean, to be fair, like if you're reading 10 or 20 super in-depth lines of JSON, that's not fun for anyone. Um, so having the CSV there is really cool. And I like that. The, I mean, it's very dynamic. This this GIF that we're looking at shows like it's it's a live editing. So it's telling you how many rows do you have and how many columns does it detecting um, and then gives you a nice tabular preview of that result. Um, so it's just another really good way uh, for me to uh, or as I'm looking at it to actually get data in um, versus like my first initial stumbling attempts were to, to write some code that would create the table, which probably would have worked, but that was, it was, it felt like it was going, uh, through more steps than was actually necessary. So I'm, I'm looking forward to using this, this grid editor in, in more detail. And I, I'm excited to hear that there were documentation improvements. I haven't, I haven't jumped in to see specifically what they were. Again, this was one of those things where when you're just grinding on a gnarly problem. <laughs> uh, when I was working on it the first time, I just w- going through a lot of different things and just literally typing things into boxes to try to see what would work. So, um, you know, what the original state at the moment that I was looking at the documentation would have been versus now. I'm not sure if I remember the specifics, but either way, I think, you know, improvements to documentation on on when it comes to column formatting um it would be super welcome so that's awesome to hear that uh, john's made that update and additionally uh at the towards the end of that episode about decker i mentioned something about wouldn't it be nice to have a kiosk mode and carrie that's where you said i wonder if that's similar to you know what locking a deck would be mm-hmm. because decker gives you the option to lock as in lock and key your deck And indeed, uh, John mentioned from his email, and here I quote again, locking a deck produces an export that hides the menu bar and suppresses most tools. It's hardly an impenetrable barrier, but helps (laughs) avoid distracting users from a finished application. So that sounds like it was just a, you know, kiosk mode, different word for it. But if you want that, you just, you know, when you're ready, uh, you lock the deck and people won't be uh, noodling around in your uh, quote unquote finished Decker application. <laughs> which I which I love to see because um, there are I, not that I don't ever want to discourage. Um, I never want to discourage people learning and understanding how something works. But depending upon what you're using this for, you you may not want someone to accidentally end up going now, how do I get back out of this into into the the deck you were presenting versus seeing all the guts of it? So it's really cool that he thought to to add that as a feature. So yeah, it was awesome to hear the uh, one the creator of Decker actually listened right? to that the episode. That and made my day. <laughs> had had a couple of uh, specific improvements based on things that we you and I ran into. So uh, I think it, it was kind of validating when you and I just mentioned in the, even in the show. You know, sometimes you're building something right and you. Uh, hit a wall and you're like, is it just me? 
And then when you right. and I compared notes, it's like, oh, no, here's some things that, but then again, now, is it just us? <laughs> well, no, because actually then the creator reaches out and says, oh, actually, two of those things fixed them. One of those other things. Yeah, you you guessed right. That's what it was. Just Which, a different name. <laughs> it, it was so cool to see that email. So, so John, thank you very much for sending it. That that made both of our days. I, I know. <laughs> yeah, thanks, John. And and one other thing I'll do in the show notes is uh, add a link to a YouTube video. So, um, you know, on, on my team at, at where I work at Nihilus, uh, we have a developer advocate named Blag, who very coincidentally, right after Gary and I recorded that, that episode, uh, um, just happened to also have an idea to do a live stream on YouTube about building Decker decks but doing it programmatically beforehand. Mm-hmm. And that was one of those ways where we were speculating like, yeah, if you wanted, since you can't make network requests from scripts inside of Decker, mm-hmm. you would need to make the those requests probably through some build tool and then programmatically build the tool around, or sorry, build the deck around that data and then mm-hmm. launch it. And indeed, that's what Blag, um, our, one of our developer advocates at Nihilus did. Uh, and he he built a uh, kind of like a Rolodex application for for Decker, mostly using wrestlers' names because <laughs> that's like what he, I don't know. That's amazing. Really, that's awesome. I don't think he knows Hulk Hogan in life, but if in real life, but it's always in his uh, example application. So, um, but it's worth checking out because um, I think you'll just you know uh, if someone's interested in learning how to build this stuff on the fly. Black has one way of going about doing it. And my assumption is there's lots of different ways to do that, uh, you know, because ultimately the language you choose and how you go yeah. about doing it is really kind of up to you. Um, but pretty cool to see that um, some of the limitations we ran into, but then also some of the ideas that we were kind of just brainstorming on towards the end of that episode. Well, it turns out people uh, fairly close to us anyways, uh, or, you know, we're running into those those issues or um, having those similar ideas and then doing uh, doing something with it. So pretty cool to see. Yeah. And and still, um, I, it still blows my mind that uh, he, he found the episode in the first place and, and was willing to listen to it. And then like it was like your your coworker also found out about Decker is like, I don't know, the, the stars were aligning or something. And I couldn't be happier because Decker is awesome. <laughs> Yeah, fun stuff's fun stuff. So I'm glad that we know people who can recognize a good time when they see it, which is right. <laughs> building one bit hypercard decks and in a, in a fairly esoteric scripting language. Love it. <laughs> Wouldn't have it in the other way. <laughs> okay, so uh, speaking of esoteric um, scripting languages, uh, well, I don't know if JavaScript counts as that, but... Uh, Depends well, on how you write it. <laughs> So, Carrie, you've been, uh, I, you know, uh, you, you can kind of introduce the topic because I think, you know, I was just uh, before we restarted recording, you mentioned some things. But it seems like the 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 central theme here today is going to be about JavaScript notebooks. Yes. Um, and I'm keenly interested to go on this ride. So why don't you uh, start the train? <laughs> yeah. So I'll kick it off. Um, so um, setting some context here, um, I've been participating in um, a codathon. Uh, for the last several years at a, at a nonprofit called We Connect the Dots, and we'll have the link in the show notes. Um, and it's basically a program that helps uh, teach uh, kids and high schoolers who, who are interested in technology and, and building websites how to do that. And so um, they learn how to build, write HTML and CSS and all of that stuff, but they also need to learn how to write JavaScript. 
And initially, when I first started, we just did the very basics of HTML, CSS, and JavaScript. And then we started adding in things like, oh, React or more advanced JavaScript. And we needed to have ways of being able to teach those. And so I'd encourage you to check out the website. And if there's any listeners who who have resources to help, certainly reach out and contact the uh, the, the program runners because we can always use more and more help or more teachers and um, just even more notoriety. But it's a really great program. Um, uh, Laura Carey is the one who who actually runs it and puts it all together, and and she's fantastic. It's very much built around um, a a a good pedagog or a good lesson plan of getting students um, not only just thinking about coding but thinking about how they can change the world through coding. Um, so really cool program. Um, but um, every time that it comes due to 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 teach um, a session in this, and I'm teaching the the more advanced JavaScript section, um, I always am looking for ways of how to use tooling um, to uh, help do that work of teaching. So you could just throw up a slide and have some dry content on there that says, "Here's how you do an array in JavaScript," or "Here's how you call." array.filter, or here's how you create array uh, arrow functions, right? But for me, and I think for a lot of students, it seems like an interactive tool is is preferable because you can start to kind of play around with the data and get a sense of what's going on. And we have lots of playgrounds out there, right? Like we have CodePen and Code Sandbox, and those are all great. Like, uh, wouldn't trade those for the world. Um, but my challenge has been is that I'm creating these these presentations and I need to have a lot of code samples and not always are they necessarily interrelated. Like they're not creating one single application, which is what I might be using a code sandbox for. Like I'm creating a sample application, but it's doing one thing versus a lot of these times uh, in my presentations. Um, actually, the one I'm giving tomorrow is we're talking about arrays, objects and functions. And I probably have a good yeah, 50 or 60 examples in there. And they're all teaching things, but they're all maybe using slightly different data. And I was trying to find some tooling and, and options out there to make that a little bit easier for me to group together in my brain. Um, but ideally also have ways of sharing that out to, to, to the students. And so I started looking, uh, Googling around for JavaScript notebooks. So there's, there's, um, I know there's this um, well-known like Jupyter notebooks where you can have um, text and is it, I, I forget the language, is it Python? Um, various languages so. um, where you can have these text nodes and other nodes in a document. They call them cells. And like the results of one cell can depend upon the results of the next cell. So you can build these um, long um, interactive documents that like slowly build you to the final result. Um, and so like, you know, say why we're doing this thing or why we're importing this library or why we're setting up this data. And then maybe uh, another text cell that explains we're manipulating this data to do X, Y, and Z. And you can finally get the output. And so I've long you know, I'm, I'm a JavaScripter. I, 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 I love JavaScript, the language. So if I could do that with JavaScript, um, I thought that would be ideal. And so I did some searching, um, and it turns out there are a few tools out there that, that do this, um, to various degrees. Um, 
there is a, a Visual Studio Code extension um, where you can have notebooks that run JavaScript. Um, and in fact, um, I'll put them in the show notes because I'm not sure if I, I, I remember it off the top of my head. It's not on this computer. It's on my other computer. Um, but I think it's called Codebook. Um, I'll double check and put it in the show notes, um, which is great. Like, so you can have a, a, a markdown document on your own computer. It has code blocks in it, and then you can execute those code blocks interactively. That's great and all for your own note taking. Um, but it's not necessarily something that I could just share with everyone else because now they've also got to configure their environments. And that's not necessarily something you want to go tell a student to do who is mostly new to JavaScript. Oh, go download VS Code, download this extension, configure your environment mm -hmm. for this to be the default for Markdown or, or to be able to open it in Markdown and then load the file and then execute all the code blocks, right? That's that's a lot of steps. <laughs> so it's, uh, it's something that I have installed on my machine and I'm going to start using more for my own personal JavaScript notes but it wasn't something that I, I felt comfortable with, sh with sharing uh, with the students. And so there was another one out there <clears throat> that I came up with uh, that made a, um, that it, it's, it looks like it's, it's a really great environment called observable. Um, and it's, it's this website, observablehq.com. And it's really made to make working with data and the observations or the visualizations of that data really easy. And, it has rich notebook capabilities. I can create text content. I can add my Java or I can add my observable code. I'm saying that for for a reason, and then I can execute those results. I can see all that data. You know, you can follow the trail as to how I got to the end result, and it's really slick. Like it's it it would it was almost my ideal solution for all of this, except that observable is not JavaScript. It looks an awful lot like JavaScript, and it's it's so close to JavaScript that um, my tendency to just default to JavaScript wins out. Um, but when you're teaching JavaScript the language, I wanted to make sure that I could use a tool that didn't um, add in its own idioms or non-JavaScriptisms and things like that, because I don't want to confuse the students. Ultimately, the student's code that, that we're using in this interactive environment it's going to be sitting in code sandbox or a node environment or something like that. It's going to be regular JavaScript. And so I was hoping that there was a tool out there that would just let me use node or JavaScript and, and nothing else or, or no other language features or what have you. And it's just JavaScript. And it turns out there is, um, there's this website called runkit, runkit.com. And, um, what it is, is basically an online, um, an online notebook where you can, you, you can log in with GitHub or any number of various accounts, but it spins up a node environment and you can select which node environment you want to be on, um, 14, 16, 18, what have you. It will run with a lot of them and you can just start typing code into a cell, run it. It'll generate the output. You can put in text cells to explain what you're doing and intermix these. And then you can publish a version of uh, what you have put in for sharing with others. And then uh, just like Git or GitHub, someone could fork that and then play with it further. So they don't have to install anything special. It's just visible out there on a web page. All they need is the link. 
Um, and happily, uh, we'll share a link in the show notes to, to some examples that I've used for, for learning. Um, but it is far easier to be able to tell a student, say, here's, here's, here's the, the code samples. You don't have to worry about copying and pasting them from the presentation. They're all here and they're all interactive. So we can go through them together. We can play with the data. We can see the results and we can see how that might impact things further down in the tree, uh, in the, in the document, because each code cell depends upon the previous code cell. Um, and so I found that was a really cool, um, cool way to teach um, the, these the, these last couple of years. I, I'm getting back into it. And so the reason this was back in my brain is like I was doing a look out there, like, are there other notebooks? Are there are there improvements to these notebooks? Because RunKit is not perfect, um, but it is it is still the best one that I found so far to help students, uh, teach students some JavaScript, giving them an interactive environment without having, you know, being overwhelmed by a full IDE or a full sandbox environment um, with, and also not just saying, here's some P PDF slides, go copy and paste. Because we all know how well copy and paste code from PDF slides sometimes works, <laughs> which is mm -hmm. to say not at all. So that's kind so of what I, I was, uh, been have been working on these last few days. <laughs> Yeah, and kind of the topic of uh, notebooks in general has come up in a lot of different ways. And, you know, you you mentioned Jupyter at the outset, and I kind of timed in to say, yeah, that's Python. But looking at it, it looks like it supports 40 different languages. Oh, wow. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm, I'm not sure what they all are, but they didn't call JavaScript out in the first four or five that they mentioned on their homepage. So, um, you know, it was it, it's definitely an area where I felt the, let's say sometimes when when there, there are certain places that I've seen, uh, you know, kind of like a, a language learning experience where a notebook actually feels like it would be pretty useful mm -hmm. um, or even just an API learning experience. But mm -hmm. the one that I called out initially when you and I were chatting about this earlier was, oh, yeah, I, I, you know, think about, for example, the website Learn X and Y Minute. Mm -hmm. um, so learnxandyminutes.com is a place there you can go and uh, basically uh, click through to, you know, you want to learn JavaScript, they're going to give you a page, just a text file, essentially, that you read through and it gives you a tour of the language. Or you can do that with, I don't know, I know I've used it before for brushing up on my bash, for example, because I don't want to mm -hmm. go like, <laughs> I'm trying to bash scripts, but I don't want to like go like digging through layers upon layers of no. <laughs> university websites trying to figure out just how many square brackets do I need here? Uh, <laughs> oh, that is so relatable. <laughs> yep. Uh, or whether or not do I actually need quotation marks here? Yes or no. Um, those kind of things. And bash comes up all the time, for, at least for me. And so uh, sometimes just going to learn X and Y minutes is great because the whole language is more or less there for you on the page and you can mm -hmm. just kind of dig through. So it's kind of a story told from start to end with, you know, the actual examples in between the text. Mm -hmm. um, and the text is usually written as a um, as a comment in said language. So, you know, let's just take, for example, like there's a there's a page on learnxandyminutes.com for JavaScript, and it mm -hmm. gives you a little blurb at the top. And then the rest of it's just this one long text file of, of JavaScript written, um, you know, in code code syntax highlighting. So, you know, you can imagine something like this being used instead of just like text file. Like, what if this were a notebook? Because there may mm -hmm. be some stuff there that I can get a little more hands on with or see specific yes. results as opposed to, mm -hmm. you know, 
sometimes it's just for whatever reason, it can kind of help to push. It's going to sound really silly, but it can help to push a run button and then see yes. that indeed one plus one equals two. And indeed, the language has figured this out for me. Um, as opposed to just having the answer written there for you in a static yeah. comment. Yeah, well, and I think it encourages, um, like, I, I'm sure there are different types of learners out here who experience this differently than I do. But I could read, like, all of these, like, like this page is great. The the Learn X and Y Minutes for JavaScript, There's a, there's it's a great cheat sheet, right? But it's also one of these things that I could read and I, I'm... I might forget within five seconds that this particular line or it's easier to easy to skip over things or whatever. It isn't like it doesn't draw me into play. And I think that's one of the nice things with the notebook is if these were like separate um, sections, like you could have number one, you could have ideally the text in more formatted format versus just always in comments like they've gone. It looks like they've gone to a great deal to try and make the comments as least um painful to read as possible but um my commenting in javascript sometimes ends up like this you would not want to read full-on documentation as comments um but then it also nicely encourages you to to actually interact with this thing so if there's that run button there i can go hit it and then that leads to the next step is like can i test my understanding or can i validate my understanding of they've got one plus one and yeah that will that should equal two but maybe i want to play with one plus a thousand or one plus some huge number what happens then um and i think just being able to get in there and play with the guts of it and um actually interact with the results is one of the things that i i like most about this idea of notebooks um and then Clearly here in, in this particular page, a lot of these things are very much standalone examples, one or two lines. They're not impacting the rest of the script. But this also lends yourself to when it is time to learn those things, that things you do above affect things that you might that might be done later or, uh, you know, how scope is important in JavaScript, um, that you can start to see how all of these things interact, which um, can be if if you if you can just read it and understand it great that's awesome but if for those of us who like to be able to play with it to actually enforce or or ingrain that knowledge um that's something that i've really enjoyed having the notebooks uh, available and this is like a cheat sheet is amazing but how much more might you learn by just playing around with these code samples yeah for sure um so you mentioned that there were um a few different options that you looked at, including a VS Code plugin. Um, I, I did a quick search, and looks like there's a number—not unsurprisingly, I suppose—but a number of yes, JavaScript notebook plugins. So I'll be curious to see which one that, that you played around with. I, I saw there was one for Node and one for JavaScript and TypeScript, and I, I don't know there may have been more. But you mentioned VS Code plugin. You mentioned Observable. You mentioned RunKit, and I think honorable mention, um, just because we're in the space, you mentioned Jupyter. Um, mm -hmm. I assume you didn't end up using Jupyter. No. Um, but which one of those did you uh, decide to go with? Yeah. So for now, um, for personal use, I'm actually going to be using um, my v the VS Code plugin. Um, and I apologies that I cannot come up with the name of it. It might have been Node Notebook, um, because, uh, the, yeah, if you look for Node.js Notebook here, um, that's one of the first ones that comes up with, um, 
And just because for personal use, like it, that means I can have a markdown full or a folder on my computer. I can do my markdown there um, and just record notes along with my JavaScript. And I can do it in a markdown format. Like it's not a custom format um, that is not exportable. It's, it's a, just a markdown file and it just detects all the code blocks and then you can run those code blocks, which is super cool. Um, but that's for personal use for educational use right now. I'm, um, using, going to be using run kit just because it is regular JavaScript. So as cool as observable is, and I've played around with it in the past and, and I still want to play, play around with it in the future. It does go to a point of saying I'm not JavaScript. Like they've, they've got some changes and, and modifications to how the, the, the DSL works there to suit the use case, which is understanding the data and getting visualizations. Whereas RunKit is very much pure JavaScript. And so that's the one that I'm going to be using, uh, still going to be using going forward. It's, it's one I've had um, for a couple of years that I've, that I've used in the session and um, haven't found anything better to this point other than maybe for some personal use. Um, but I definitely, there are definitely areas where RunKit could improve um, but it still is one of the best ones that I've come across to this point that is um, true to JavaScript, is providing an interactive environment and lets me share that content with others. Okay. So when you go in to make a new notebook, I'm curious what that process was like for you because you, you weren't really starting from scratch, right? In terms of like you already had a lot of this material prepared in some other format, I suppose, that you've been using. So when you go in, um, you what what are you doing? Are you doing things like selecting, I don't know, like the node version or um, that kind of thing? And like, yeah. how, how do you how do you kind of just move house, if you will, into yeah. something like this? So um, what they do is um, when you go to rungate.com and you sign in, um, you can create a new notebook um, and it uh, will give you uh, a, the wonderful title of Untitled Notebook. And then below that, it gives you a, a node version. And it looks like right now it's defaulting to node 14, um, which when I wrote these examples, I think may have been the version that these examples were written in. Um, you can pick any node version you want. I, anymore, I would just default to the node 18. But you've also got versions. So there's clearly there's this this um, uh, concept of, of version history which is nice. Once you publish something, you uh, just like a gist uh, you, where you can publish multiple versions of gists in GitHub, you can have multiple versions of these. And then you can just, uh, it defaults you to a code block. Um, so it's a, kind of assuming that the first thing you're going to do is run, type in some code and run it. And so in the very first code block, you could put in some JavaScript, maybe console log, hello world or something like that. And it's got full on uh, syntax highlighting, um, it uh, also has, you know, uh, it'll catch errors and things like that. Like I just typed uh, in my on my computer, I forgot a quote, and it's giving me an unterminated string con uh, constant. Um, so it's it's not um, it's not a VS Code level of editor, but it is enough where it's like you know the the little code text fields uh, that various websites have. And then you can start typing. The, the hard part here is like thinking about granularity. Um, you can have, you could just have one code block that does everything, but that kind of defeats the purpose of a notebook, which is to break things down into smaller bits and kind of explain their relationship. 
So you could just have a hundred lines of code in one code block, but I tend to um, ensure that I've, you know, one or two particular actions per block. So like when I'm trying to explain a concept, like say like, what, what, how would I uh, filter an array? For example, I might have one code block defining the array items because I might actually have multiple things, uh, uh, multiple cells below that say, here's how you filter. And another one might be, here's an example of mapping over it, or here's an example of how you sort it. And so it all uses just like one set of data. So I might have one code block that is, here's me defining the array. And then I'll have another code block below that that says, here is me sorting the array, or here is me filtering on the array. Um, and then logging that result back to the console, which um, it will it will um, detect how you export your data. So you can say console log, and it will put it in as if it were logged to the console. But you can also just return the the um, the array or the object, and it will try to pretty print those, which is nice. Um, and then you just have a list of cells. Um, and what's interesting here, and maybe is not always for anyone who's not familiar with the concept of notebooks. It, and especially in JavaScript land, is each cell depends upon the results of the previous cell. So the, the, the thing that I put into cell one is still in scope in cell 50 or cell 25 or whatever. So you have to be aware in terms of JavaScript renaming, like if I declare something const in cell one, I better not be reassigning it in cell 25, because that will still fail as, as if it were a single large JavaScript file. And so despite, um, was this yeah. just to make sure that, that that one gets like, so despite what it may look like, I guess, like in other yes. words, the, the one file is one script. It is, it is technically one script. Yes, exactly. Yes. Cool. So the, whatever I put into cell one, if I say const my variable equals five or something like that, and then come down to cell five and I've, you know, I, I, if you're like me, I'm unimaginative with my variable names. So I will tend to reuse <laughs> variable names sometimes in my examples. And then if I have const my variable equals 10, that is a syntax error, a syntax error or, or whatever it is in JavaScript land. That will fail and it will complain loudly because it still is in the context, even though you have individual cells in this document, they are not separate contexts. Um, and so you can use your JavaScript tricks. You could you could put them in a block and that will create a new context if you want to. Um, but you have to know JavaScript enough to do that or create a new function and give yourself a new scope and things like that. So you do have to be aware that cell one is in scope at cell 25 or cell 50 or what, however many cells you have. Um, but that is also how where it gets some of the power is like I can have cell one be my setup. And so here's the definite, here's the contents of my array, which maybe if I'm teaching an example on um, doing maps and things on, on, a, on an array, I might have an array of primes. And so cell one could be my, my definition of here's an array of prime numbers. And then all the examples below will be showing how we can filter based upon even or oddness or doubling them or multiplying them or sorting them. And I don't have to redefine cell one every time. Um, so there's a lot of power there, but there is a gotcha is if you don't, if, if you aren't thinking that that way, where each cell might, you might imagine that it gets its own context. It's a rude awakening when you find out, nope, 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 nope. <laughs> <laughs> the whole document is a single JavaScript context. Yeah, that's really cool. So I think probably my mental model of this would be 
despite what it looks like on the surface, it's actually a JavaScript file with a bunch of like nice yes. things baked on top of it, like yes. you know, plain text or rich text, I suppose, um, and that kind of thing. So you know, and just kind of go in and think, okay, my first notebook, if that's what it is in my mind, is my first notebook.js. Um, but it has a bunch of bells and whistles on top of it. So at least when I'm thinking of the JavaScript, I can think of it as a single file. Yeah, precisely. And so it's it also lends itself to like, you're not necessarily going to be doing, although you could, a thousand different unrelated things here. Um, you can have any number of notebooks as you want. Um, so like, for, for example, one of the things that I did here uh, for this uh, We Connect the Dots program is, is I limited it just to the the examples in that particular night. So like I have one of these documents, which is the examples in that night. And I have another document for, for further examples because this is also running JavaScript and showing you the results. You also don't want to end up with a page that takes, you know, a minute to load and render because it's running all this JavaScript initially. Um, that's the other thing that these notebooks will do is they don't wait for you to run the code when you go there, they run the code first, first go, and then you can make changes to see the results of those. So on load, uh, whatever you have uh, happening in that code is going to happen and you can actually uh, watch it step through. Um, if you have too many cells in here, yeah, that, that might slow things down a little. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I'm looking here as well. So like one, seeing how it all loads at first starts to make sense in terms of like every single line of code shows you the return value, including I found if you just do a console log in a cell, mm -hmm. then you're going to get undefined um, as a return. So like it'll show you yes. what was printed, but I guess the undefined is because console log doesn't return. Doesn't anything. return anything. Yep. Yeah. So that's that's an interesting one, but that just kind of happens automatically. Uh, so I guess that's part of on page load. Yes. One one question I have, uh, and uh, maybe if you haven't tried this yet, maybe we can figure it out together. But uh, there's a thing up at the top. So like when you have a notebook, you can imagine like the notebook has a title, right? Whatever that is. And then it shows you whatever node version you're running. It shows you the current branch you're on in version mm -hmm. control. There's a publish button. Um, and then there's a thing that says endpoint. Yes. I am dying to know what that is. Does <laughs> this mean like you can kind of treat it as almost like a serverless function and it runs when you send yes. a ping to it and you get a return value or what's going on there? Yes. So there is a way um, where you can say this is um, a function that is going to be registered at that particular URL at your notebook URL. Um, it becomes an API. And uh, you could then call it from other locations and have it generate the data. And there's actually a button over the, on the left-hand side in, this, in the side rail that will actually show you the logs of anything that's hit that, um, that particular um, document um, to, to, to show you if there's you know, any errors or if there's activity. Um, my example file is not, an, not set up as an API. So when I go there, it says no activity in the last 24 hours. But it will also let you, um, it gives you a quick short demonstration if you click that button of like, uh, if you're new to endpoints, make sure you export a particular function. So you have to name it a certain thing. And then uh, they give you the example of here's how you do it in curl to hit that endpoint. Um, and they do have some endpoint documentation as well that um, we should add to the to the, the show notes. Oh, yes. Um, and... 
uh, goes through the the details of of how you have to set up your notebook for that to actually work. Um, but it's really, really kind of slick. Is it's not just for learning JavaScript and seeing what the results are in page, but you could actually make a serverless function that you're trying to use somewhere else. And right. this kind of serves as a repository for this. So I really want to read this documentation on this because this this little feature feels too cool to be able to actually exist. So <laughs> <laughs> there's got to be some gotchas in here and th uh, that would be totally understandable that there would be, but I want to know what they are because it's like really, really neat that you can just like put together a notebook and then call it as an right? API and get a return value. And okay, that's awesome. Well, and what I think is super cool about that too is now, now you can almost have this world where I've got my endpoint defined, um, but then I've also got um, nice documentation around how it all works. So like there's, it's not just I'm, uh, you know, sometimes that's the hardest part is coming back to the code 10 days or a month or a year later going, what in the world was, was I doing? Well, now you can like leave some more nicely formatted uh, content there saying, here's what I was doing and why I was thinking this and that, the other thing. And so you almost have like the API living side by side with its, with, with the documentation as to why it is what it is. Um, and yeah, I'm certain there has to be like, rate limits and everything else because this is free <laughs> so there's got to be gotchas like that but for like small little projects where maybe i'm just doing personal things and hitting an api endpoint um it's it's really pretty slick uh so here we go the restrictions on it one it has to be over https which mm -hmm. fine it should be uh next is something about let's see RunKit lets you use top-level await at any time, but you can't use top-level await before exporting your endpoint function. I guess I'd need to think through what that's trying to communicate, but sure. I think uh, it's basically... Yeah. It makes sense, I think, from 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 my... If, if I'm trying to parse with my JavaScript brain on, await would then essentially mean if I, if I don't export my endpoint function before an await... I've essentially like that await's going to happen and it's going to be asynchronous or it's going to take some amount of time. And so it's by the time RunKit really needs to know that you're exporting something, it's that that JavaScript tick has passed and it never sees it. That's my guess. Okay. All right. Um, I wonder if that means realistically that you end up back at like the sort of init pattern init function pattern if you will where like you remember how before you could do top level await in node you always kind of had to have like that yeah. first like top level function to kick off all the async await stuff these days you don't have to do that anymore but i wonder if like that's kind of what they're pushing you towards um yeah i haven't i haven't thought this through enough to to know but I mean, if that's all it is that's not actually it doesn't feel too restricty honestly right yeah i i, I think one can um, work around. It's nice to know that that is there because you might just try it and expect, oh, I've got module that dot exports. It's just down below after the fact that I actually did an await. Um, so I could see where it could be. It's nice that they call it out instead of uh, getting frustrated at it. Hmm. Okay. And then the, the last restriction is kind of like the one that I was wondering if it was coming and here it is. So requests must terminate within 60 seconds. Although that feels relatively standard for um, serverless functions. Like, I don't know if 60 seconds is the standard, but there's, you know, you can't just like have it going forever. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. Um, but it continues. 
endpoints are rate limited and during the beta period they are restricted to non-commercial use so i assume that means that runkit itself is beta yeah um, they've been beta forever um i think one of my notebooks is five years old at this point so, uh, so gmail type beta i got it <laughs> yes. okay um and then the last little sentence here is that if you need to raise rate limits or would like to use endpoint commercially just get in touch yeah so i would say like in terms of using this like if you were thinking about using um run kit like in a home lab project or something like that where you're doing something personally this feels like it might be a a way to do that without having to go through a lot of infrastructure assuming you know that you trust run kit and, and their infrastructure but you wouldn't want to say, oh, I'm going to build an iOS app and I am going to use RunKit as some of my backend infrastructure because, you know, if that spins up and becomes popular or you're making money off of that, that that feels like you probably actually would want to have a more robust infrastructure in place already for that. Yeah, that that makes a ton of sense. And honestly, from my perspective, you you hit the nail on the head. <laughs> uh, kind of thinking in the process or in the in sort of the realm of uh, like a, a home labbing project or something. Mm-hmm. And it's like, well, the more I've been, that was one of my 2023 things I want to think about or, or play around with uh, in our last episode. And as I've kind of just been mulling it over in the back of my head, one of the things that I start to think about is, well, now I've got to have a home server that is always on mm-hmm. even if it's not exposed or open to the broader internet still needs to always be on so it's not going to be something running on my laptop now obviously this is like you said someone else's infrastructure running somewhere so what i would want to put on it um i guess it would be case by case but it mm-hmm. sure is interesting and it almost feels like <laughs> it just feels like this is like a secret way to get <laughs> serverless functions for your little for a side project and notebook or not i I, that's just i don't know why i'm really excited about this one little feature uh that's just kind of tucked away there at the top of a notebook but sounds like there's tons of possibilities yeah and that's what i kind of like about this is like it is it is um targeting both sides of the javascript coin like JavaScript isn't just front end or back end. It can be used in all of those contexts. And although when I've been teaching students for um, the We Connect the Docs Codeathon, it's largely been in the context of a front end. So not worrying so much about node version or an or an API endpoint. But it's like it's wonderful that it does lend itself to this other side of the coin because there are also cases where these students um, sometimes are. Um, you know, the, the A plusers of the class who like to go that extra mile and really flesh everything out. And, and, you know, they have now that capability of if they want to use this as their backend, they could do that. And they could have a, a project that's being judged that shows not just a front end website working, but a backend that is kind of simulating what they what they wanted to present to the judges rather than sometimes because um, that's one of the, the challenges sometimes when you're teaching web development is like, oh, you want to have a contact us form? And you have, you know, the the form tag, and then you end up having to say, well, okay, where does it go? Where do the contents go? Mm. And inevitably, because uh, for the first level students where they don't know JavaScript or have a database backend, 
it's like, it just goes nowhere. And so it's like, it's, it's gotta be a little bit deflating when you're presenting your content and it's like, oh yeah, we have a content form, but it doesn't work because you know, you, now you need to have a backend part of your, your code. And we're not teaching all of that. Here's a solution for, for those who want a little bit of JavaScript. It's not a perfect thing. Like it's not going to persist data or anything like that, but it can at least, you know, return the appropriate result that says, yep, I got your contact information or those kinds of things to complete that loop. Um, so it's really kind of cool in that regard. Mm, that's really neat. Um, and I was looking through, uh, when you make a first notebook, it gives you like a handful of like a bulleted list at the bottom it doesn't even say what this list is, but it's just a list of cool stuff as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> yes. So that I just like mention a few of these. Uh, one, it says that all documents on RunKit are public and you mm -hmm. make them searchable by publishing. So I guess that means that what if you make a notebook, you just only have to share the URL. Yes. And people can see it, but otherwise mm -hmm. they're not going to find it. Once you hit publish, then then people actually right. find it. Okay. Uh, the next one's kind of a, a little mind blowing. Um, mm -hmm. All of NPM's 1 million plus packages are already pre-installed, just require them. So one, um, I mean, I can imagine what the security nightmare that must be is, but okay. Um, <laughs> at least for the people building it, I'm, I'm sure that's a fun story. Um, do you have to require? Can we import? Do you know? I actually have not tried to import. Um, I, I, I should try that um, at some point. Um, I thought, there was one um had an example of it but i think all of the ones that i've seen so far use require um so it wouldn't surprise me if that one might be one of the those cases where a javascript import might not react uh the right way okay um worth finding out at some yes. point just to check out but i i've i've mostly moved into um es modules land almost exclusively unless i have to use require i think I don't, I don't feel super strongly about one versus the other myself but it just seems to be that that's the way the wind's blowing so I'm oh just yeah totally trying to get myself in line with that as early as possible uh next bullet point here uh in terms of cool stuff with run kit uh it says uh, you can use arrow functions classes template strings and most of es6 they link to a document with everything they support which looks like most of es6 they don't call out specifically what they don't support. So I don't know, um, but they have like ES7 asynchronous functions, as we mentioned earlier. Mm -hmm. uh, and they also um, have JSX and React support. So that's a uh, that's handy just to have right there. Yeah, and that's one of those things where um, one of the reasons why I also considered RunKit for, for this is um, there's multiple levels in this codeathon that we teach. I'm teaching mostly the JavaScript one this year. Um, but there's a React um, level above that. Um, and so um, you can imagine, like, if you're trying to teach React, that this is having React support um, could be a useful way to to teach um, in small snippets with an interactive tool, um, making React that little bit more approachable. Hmm. Yeah, for sure. And it's interesting because in combination of that, you just mentioned the example of, like, you know, if you want to let students show off like how to put together a forum and persist data, well, that's like, you know, first invent the universe. And then, like they have to, there's a lot they're going to have to learn to do that. Yes. Um, I almost wonder, so maybe this is a topic for another time, but one of the things is I've been kind of noodling around with uh, building Safari web extensions over the last week or so has been uh -huh. um, 
these days, web extensions using that, I guess it's just called the web extension standard, mm-hmm. can request a permission called unlimited data. And then you can just persist stuff as uh, as long as it's serializable as a JavaScript, uh-huh. or sorry, as a JSON object, um, then you can persist whatever. Um, so uh, up and if you don't request unlimited storage, I don't remember what they give you. It's it's kind of if you're just doing basic JSON, it's probably a lot anyways. It's ten megabytes or so. That would know. be my assumption. I think that's like the default in like a lot of the local storage ones. So I'm surely they wouldn't reinvent the wheel for that, but they yeah. might. But you almost wonder like about like what if you could just like give students like a web extension that says okay persistent the persistent data you don't really have to worry about because we're going to bake in Very now, true. now 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 we're moving into observable <laughs> land almost where we're like we're going to give you our flavor of javascript <laughs> which includes and you know which is you and you start to understand why they did why? that right because yes. there are certain things that you want to enable people to do around mm-hmm. you know with observable i think that their main thing is data viz mm-hmm. or data visualization so there are just kind of some things that you're going to want to have as an icd that's just there for people who yes. are working within a specific use case so but with a web extension, I think you could basically put like a global um, object that would essentially store things into that um, browser persistence layer. Mm-hmm. Again, there's probably other ways to go about doing this. I don't know. I'm, I'm kind of just like in web extension brain at the moment. But either <laughs> way, like it might be pretty neat, right? Because like just yeah. with RunKit alone, if you've got the React and you've got the JavaScript and everything right here, and then the last thing you're missing is just a place to hand that data off to and expect mm-hmm. it to be there later. Um, feels like there's there's probably some stuff that one could do to yes. maybe build that in for people. Yeah, yeah, totally. And and that is definitely in in my particular course, I don't have to address that because uh, we're talking about, you know, arrays and classes and functions and just briefly getting into, oh, here's how you make a network request to contact an API endpoint. Um, but it's in the next level, like once you get into React land, like then really students are going, well, I want to be able to put my stuff in a database somewhere or persist that when the, the judge refreshes the page, you don't want to see it disappear just because they didn't, you know, the course isn't about backends, but um, having that that persistence layer would definitely make it go that next next level further. Yeah, um, a couple of other bullet points here. Well, we mentioned the the fact that you can use await um, with any promise instead of using callbacks. They have a it says there's an example, but it's actually like a whole notebook that mm-hmm. kind of talks about why REPLs have tended to push you towards using callbacks as opposed to some of this other stuff, but um, RunKit gives you top-level await, so you can just use it, which is pretty sweet. I love top-level await. (laughs) Yeah, top-level await, pretty great. Although it sounds like there may be a little caveat there if you're using the endpoint stuff for serverless function, but again, um, chances are if you were doing Node and working with async await um, kind of up until the last couple of versions, I guess, um, then you didn't have top level await there either. Mm-hmm. And you, you, you may have some ideas about how to, to cope with that. Uh, okay. So moving on, you can store secrets and environment variables. I think this is part call out of don't put your environment variables in the code, <laughs> especially since all this exactly. stuff is public, public. by default. <laughs> So that's that I would probably 
pull that one right on up to the top of the list if it were if but just yes i agree like that one should probably be like i i don't know you can overdo the warnings and like have big red blinking lights and everything like that like (laughs) don't store public you know your private stuff publicly but um yeah it does need to be said is like if you've got an API key that you want to use like this, don't put it in your code. That's 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 not a good place to actually do it because that code is public. And um, if that were to if someone were to guess that link or what have you, then then that API key is out there for everyone to see. Yeah, that, that's one where you can feel like almost putting a little bit of niceties into the UI itself. So if you see like a common yes. pattern of where you would, might plug in some sort of secret just to be like, Hey, uh, don't do this. Have a linting <laughs> error that says, Oh, I think you've used an API key. Are you sure you want to do that? <laughs> that would be super cool. Yeah. I wonder though. I mean, it, I mean, I've never hit a save button while I'm working on this little document that I'm putting together as we talk. So something tells me that like, by the time you've typed the letter, it could be too late, you know? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know how that would work exactly, which also is interesting in terms of version control. Because I guess there's a difference between what gets auto saved and your maybe you need to come in and like actually make commits specifically. Have yeah. you done much with that? Once you publish, um, so like you, your your current version is always your your most recent version is always uh, whatever you've done latest. You can then you, basically you can checkpoint or tag and say this is something that I want to be published. It's fixed. And that's the link that I would sh- would be sharing with everyone else. I wouldn't necessarily be sharing the the top level one. I'll share the one that is version X Y Z of this document, and then that way, you know, if you come back in later and you make changes to it that you um, are just experimenting or you don't want to have other users see as you're typing, <laughs> um, publishing is definitely the way to go about that, so that you can give them something a little bit more fixed. Um, versus something that they might be seeing, like maybe you're in the middle of of adding a function and it's going to cause a syntax error. Well, they don't need to see that particular error. So I would say if you're sharing it with um, another person or a student or whomever, publish first, just kind of like you would with a with a uh, well, you have to with a gist. Mm-hmm. But like you, once you publish, then you can have multiple versions of those, and you can say, oh, got a new version. Here's version two or whatever. Yeah. That's one that I would have to build a little muscle memory around. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'd be like, yes. just go check out the latest. And they're like, this is the same. I'm like, ah, didn't yeah, push the yeah. button. It's like, well, well, yeah, go go look at the newest version or what have you. Um, yeah. So there's definitely some things that you would have to think through in terms of whether or not it makes sense in your workflow. Like for my, my example is like um, the examples are not particularly... Uh, they're not particularly exciting. They're they're learning examples of here's how you create and use arrays and here's how you create objects and things like that. And so not likely to need a lot of iteration on them. Um, so like very like not likely going to need to say, oh, go get the new version here. But if you were doing something like home labbing or you, you wanted to have an endpoint where you have a published stable version and then you come back to it and I want to make some changes to it, you would have to be aware that oh if i publish a new version of it i should should use the correct url for it Hmm. clicking around in some other places in runkit i find there's like a in their main navigation at the top Mm -hmm. there's an explore tab that you can go into and check out like the notebooks by popularity or recently published and they also have some 
featured ones like there's one that lets you um prototype slack slash commands which is pretty cool uh or it sounds cool anyways you can track the international space station with a notebook um (laughs) which i love that i i I just love that notion (laughs) yeah that's pretty cool so there's it's kind of neat that there are some some social features I don't know. Maybe, um, social features. I'm not sure if that's the right word for it, but it's like you can kind of see what other people are doing and maybe even actually share some stuff beyond mm-hmm. just people that you would happen to know, which I think yeah. is pretty neat. Which I, I really like that. Like um, it, it builds a sense of or a community that's learning together and you can you can show off some cool examples, discover new things, kind of like um, I think it is CodePen that has one of those, too, where it's like, oh, here's some of the cool things that have been published. And then you can go dig in and go, oh, here's how you might use CSS in this fun, strange way to accomplish this result, which I really, really enjoy seeing. Um, and it's also just a really another good way um, not to harp on it in terms of developer experience and documentation. Um, obviously if you're in RunKit, you need to know JavaScript, like RunKit is not going to document JavaScript for you. Um, but it's also like, there's some documentation on endpoints, for example, that's great. There's not a lot of other great documentation around like, like, uh, some of the visualizations, like so far, like, uh, you've probably seen the console log and, and the, the pretty printing of an array, but there's one in here, for example, on this explore RunKit page, if you scroll down, there's a beaker example. And if you click on that, um, turns out you can render a D3 graph and it will visually display it. So now it's not it's it's more than just a here's the pretty printed array. You can also do more visualizations after that. So it's also serving as good examples of how to get richer visualized content out of it. And at this point, maybe it starts to become a little bit more like, well, maybe that's something I would take to observable. Um, but then there's that, this also opens up other cases where maybe I'm not using D3, but some other sort of visualization. Um, so it also serves as documentation. Um, I like examples as documentation. I just, I I don't, I'm not always a fan of it being the only documentation. (laughs) Yeah. I think too, this is probably an interesting, like when it comes to documentation for a tool like this, it's probably an interesting thing to think about in terms of personas yes you know because like for for yep. me for example coming to something like a notebook like i'm coming at it from a direction of i'm used to just writing javascript and what's all this other stuff i, I don't need the javascript part explained necessarily it's mm-hmm. everything else that's going on which is a lot yes um talk to me about that and what are we trying to do here whereas mm-hmm. you could imagine for example like so that's like your your javascript developer you know understanding the lay of the land from the point of view of a JavaScript developer. But you can also imagine understanding the lay of the land from a JavaScript learner mm-hmm. as a student. And there, I think it's there's there are other types of things that would need to be, you know, kind of emphasized, if you will, on helping people get started um, yeah. and understanding, you know, helping them understand, like a student coming to this, by definition, the whole environment's going to be fairly foreign, at least some aspects of it. And so just kind of helping them get a little solid grasp on, you know, if you didn't have notebooks, this is what you would be dealing with kind of thing. And this is what, you know, here's a Mm -hmm. text file with a bunch of JavaScript in it and maybe some comments. And instead, this is what we're giving you here. That's why this is like it is. And here's how you're going to do X, Y, and Z. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, it definitely does 
highly depend upon like the persona who's going to be using it. This is why like I've been using RunKit for when I'm doing education, but if I were doing um, sharing some visualizations, I'd probably default to observable because that's a spot where I'm not, not um, intentionally teaching JavaScript itself. Um, if it were more about just, you know, notebooking and data viz observable for the win. Um, but when it's like, uh, just teaching pure JavaScript, that's the nice thing that I, that I have with RunKit um, or the, the visual studio one that we'll include in the show notes where it is just pure JavaScript doesn't come with some of the niceties that observable has, but then we're serving two different personas. Yeah. So you mentioned that you're going to take for this, the playground that you've built on RunKit to teach JavaScript, you're going to be using that, I think you said at the end of the month. So actually, um, the first sessions that I'm teaching are going to be actually this week. So by the time this is published, it will already have happened. Um, but, um, we have, it's always, it always happens at the beginning of the year when we have, um, uh, teach HTML, JavaScript, and React um, over the course of a couple of weeks. And then the competition proper is at the end of the month of January, where wow. the students will then get in. Uh, they will spend the entire weekend, kind of like the um, the the weekend hackathons of old, where you get into a room, and it is literally just go code. And you have three days to do it in. And you at the end of that, you present what you have. Uh, now it's virtual because uh, we're in a post or we're in a, a COVID post COVID world, but um, it's the same kind of idea. So we do all the training in advance. And so the students can figure out where they sit, where, where they would like to try all of these things out, whether or not they want to stay um, just, just learn about HTML. If they've never done that, that's where they should start. Or do they want to learn some more advanced skills and then they have three days at the end of the month of January to just go go create something really amazing and and share with the share with the judges. Well, that sounds really fun. I, I had a look at some of the past uh, winning entries on the We Connect the Dots uh, website. Because mm -hmm. on the top page there, for at least for the Codathon, um, it looks like it, they had. The most recent ones they had, I think, were from 2020, if I remember correctly. I was just looking at it a moment ago. But they had some, for example, that were using like drones um, to help deal with some trash problems and mm -hmm. some things of that nature. So it's it's really neat to see that like it's kind of this combination of, um, you know, code, but also hardware in some cases, but also like real world like social issues that exactly. people could have an impact on. Yeah. And I think that's what I love so much about this program and the way um, uh, the organizers have put it together is it's not just solely the coolness of programming, which I mean, honestly, as far as that I'm concerned, that's, that's cool in and of itself. That's, 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 that's just fun for my brain to think on. Well, I mean, but, you, you co-host, I would rather be scripting. So right. <laughs> <laughs> don't have to reiterate that fact, but yeah, sure. Speaking, speaking <laughs> to agree. the choir. Um, but I love that in this case, it is also about um, encouraging um, people coming into the field to think, you know, not just how can I use tech for cool things or for fun? How can I actually use it to make a difference in the world? And um, it's not always maybe the most intuitive thought process that, oh yeah, this thing that I'm learning JavaScript or HTML could actually change the world and make a difference in people's lives. And um, having this be the part of the core of the program is I just think such an interesting way, such a valuable way of running it. 
I mean, you could just have, you could end up with um, a hackathon where it's like everyone will end up with their own games at the end of the day. And not to say that building games isn't cool and awesome and potentially world changing either. Um, but um, this really makes you, makes the teams stretch a little bit to think, here's how I could use this technology in a way that is more than just say a video game or something like that. It is actually getting it out there and, and potentially impacting lives. And it intersects with a lot of things. So like there's uh, some teams have, have done it with drones and some teams will end up saying like, oh, we could use artificial intelligence to do X, Y, and Z or, you know, address certain things. And so it, it encourages them to think more broadly across the entire landscape and, and dream a little bit, which I think is, is, is the best thing in the world is encourage them to, to think about, even though they may not know how to do it yet. Um, some of these things are, you know, AI is, is, is we don't, we're not teaching a course on AI necessarily in terms of how to build your own neural network, but it encourages them to think about, Oh, what if, and, and maybe uh, guide them down that path in the future. That's cool. And for anyone wondering about the neural networks <laughs> run kit actually has something there i just exactly <laughs> i didn't even try that out yet but they have like a whole notebook that shows you how to teach a neural net about colors or something so i, yes. I don't know um but yeah that that's that's really awesome carrie um i'm awesome that you got a, we got a chance to talk about what you're doing with that uh and then also take a page from some of what you're doing to teach kids about learning JavaScript um, and just seeing how some of these tools could be potentially useful to us in, in different ways. I mean, mm -hmm. I find myself, uh, I think I mentioned before that RunKit's one of those things that I think I've seen flash across one of my browser tabs at some point, but didn't internalize. And um, I think it could have been in the context of like API documentation. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, there's probably something smart there to potentially try to figure out for you know, when you're doing API docs, what level of like, at what level would it make sense to just have your API docs be a series of notebooks? Or is right. that like an yeah. addition to a standard mm -hmm. set of documentation or, or something like that? Yeah. And yeah, I think there's, there's lots of ways to slice that or at a minimum, you know, even if you're not necessarily using RunKit as infrastructure, but gives you that idea of not only do I have, um, static content, but there's also this little bit of it that is interactive. And um, like if you're learning how to draw or you're learning to play the piano or um, sculpt, you you have to get physical with with that object. And this is one of those ways in which you could do that is is you have the static content and then you have the interactive content next to it. Um, and to me, that that that's just such a natural way to encourage experimentation. And in addition to all the learning that you're going to get from the static content. Yeah, for sure. Like you said at the beginning, uh, when you're greeted with, you know, 45 minutes of configuring <laughs> your developer environment, there are only certain folks that are going to even feel right. like making it through that or have the means to 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 figure it out. And Certainly, I've been on that side of things before, and it's not even been that long ago. So, <laughs> you know, oh, yes. something that really just lets people get into the fray and let's do the fun stuff first. And then you can start to zoom out and kind of like, OK, yeah. here are some other things that I would want now that I get it. I'm having fun with it. I'm making something start to zoom out a bit one layer at a time, hopefully, mm -hmm. and help people kind of like get those things around the edges. Peel like, back the layers of that onion. <laughs> indeed, indeed. So, um, well, this is an awesome topic. Thanks for bringing this one, Carrie. Uh, maybe before, it's probably worth uh, mentioning once again before we close out here that um, 
we're on Mastodon. <laughs> yes, yes, we are on Mastodon. <laughs> so yeah, I thought uh, I I was gonna say what I always forget how to say where I'm on. I feel like a real dummy, um, but I will eventually get this right. You want to <laughs> say how people can find you first? Yeah, so I am at Carrie Shots. I am on the Mastodon Cloud instance. Uh, and okay, so I'm Ash Ryan, and I'm on the indieweb dot social instance. Awesome. Um, yeah, you'll know it's me if you're seeing mostly pictures of records. Uh, that's kind of <laughs> <laughs> been my my jam recently. It's just <laughs> showing people what I'm listening to on my record player. Mm, I I'm I I I love it that I, that vinyl is 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 doing its thing. Um, both my nephews now have record players. Um, Christmas is full of buying them records and um, them buying records for each other. It's it's so cool. <laughs> yeah, and and you know I got to say too that being on Mastodon's been more fun than I thought it was going to be. It's kind of it does remind me of super early early days, Twitter. Twitter. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure that's not a unique observation, but it's just like a felt lived experience mm-hmm. that I've had where it's like oh. Um, I'm kind of back in the space where it, not the whole planet's on it. And that feels to me like a feature, not a bug, um, you <laughs> yes. know, and so that that that's all well and good. I don't have much more to say than like I'm having a lot of fun on it in a way that perhaps I haven't felt about any of the social media sites in, in many years. Yeah, same here. And so, yeah, definitely uh, feel free to reach out to any of us on on the Mastodon instances and um, always happy to have a conversation. Yeah, but, you know, if we're not on a Mastodon, I'm not sure what you'd be doing, Carrie, but I'd rather be scripting. Thanks for listening to this episode of I'd Rather Be Scripting. If you love scripting, terminals, Z shell, JavaScript development, and other random technology tangents as much as we do, we'd love to hear from you. You can always leave a review on your preferred podcasting platform, or you can reach out to us via the social links on our website. I'd rather be scripting.com. Until next time, I'd rather be scripting. <laughs>